0: Welcome to Bad GM's campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide as we build an entire campaign for your group from creating a starting city to character creation to building the scenarios that comprise a campaign. As you know, we've been building using the Deadlands Classic system, and we'll start today's show by continuing to build our campaign. But first, As always, let's recap what we created last week, just in case you forgot. It was the end of the gun battle from the previous week, and while the doctor was checking on the wounded and the mayor was working to help get some things cleaned up, Marshall Ed was not very happy. The next day, Marshall Ed was decked out for what he believed would be a war with a whole lot of guns. He reported that the men that had tried to kill him were from the Colson Corporation, which is a group of outlaws supposedly funded by business interests around the region. The players offered, in my game anyway, to help out the marshal by keeping an eye on the town and were deputized to do so. That was probably a good thing. Since around 10 p.m., the players noticed fire rolling from the east towards Triumph. It's a group of 12 men on horseback carrying torches. A 13th man, older and thinner, walked out in front of those men and called out Marshal Ed. Ed got off a shot and dropped the older man, while his men tossed the torches at the jail, lighting it up. From there, the battle ensued. It's possible some of the townspeople got involved, but that's up to you and your group and how things worked out. It's also possible that if the group found itself in a really bad spot, Deputy Sheriff Roscoe Clint and his two assistants rolled in to help finish things off. In this aftermath, the doctor is again treating the wounded, doing a triage before handling the worst cases first. It's also possible, again, depending on how you ran it, that the marshal is dead. That's all covered in last week's build, so we won't recap it here. Moving on with our recap, Deputy Clint gave the players a couple of pieces of information they didn't have before. The presumably dead older guy is Connor Coulson, who is the brother of Francis Coulson, who runs the Coulson Corporation. Also he notes that the Coulson Corporation won't stop until Marshall Ed, if he's still alive, and the group are dead and Triumph is burned to the ground. Clint sent one of his assistants to a village about a day and a half away to bring reinforcements, and things seemed to calm down for about a week. However, on day seven, all hell breaks loose as 20 men attempt to overrun Triumph. Again, this was an all-hands-on-deck battle, but if you're still with me, then your group survived. And that's where we'll pick up today. Before we start building, I need to remind you that, as you heard last week, my group is headed in a far different direction than what we're building at present. That's perfectly okay. I had one vision for how this game would run, and my group has had another. I've been experimenting with having more of a sandbox type of game anyway, and my group seems to really be enjoying it. And if you're not sure what a sandbox game is, check out last week's episode of Roleplaying History, available in the archives wherever you get your podcasts. Alright, so we are seriously in a bad place post battle. Without question there are dead citizens, probably dead law dogs, and possibly even a dead player character or two. So how do we want to handle that? First off, remember this. Five wounds to anything other than the guts or head just means the player is maimed and therefore they'll lose the use of the limb. So the bleeding can be stopped and the player will live. But I also realized that some players won't want to play a character with this type of disability. If you have players for whom this is a deal breaker, the fact that you're in a town allows for the player to create a new character. This is something you'll probably want to do between game sessions, unless, of course, most of your party is in this position. If Marshal Ed and or the Mayor are dead, then you'll have to decide who the acting Marshal and or acting Mayor are. I leave this up to you because in my game, they're still alive, at least at this point in the game. For surviving this type of fight, I would award each player whose character survived a red chip. Believe me, they earned it. Alright, so let's get moving along in our storyline. Once the group has had a chance to lick their wounds, they are, no doubt, looking for retribution after three separate attacks on them and their town, they can easily backtrack and figure out where the attackers came from. It'll take them about 12 hours of riding to find it, so depending on what time they leave Triumph, they might need to take a rest of some sort before they head out. I would argue if they've been awake for more than 20 hours, this is an absolute no-brainer and a must be done. So... They'll come over a rise in the plains and be able to look down several hundred yards into a valley. Inside that valley, there are three rather large buildings, two that appear to be barns and one that is obviously a farmhouse. There's also fencing running several hundred yards in all directions. This would be a good time for a cognition search or scrutinize check so that the players can try to get a look at what's inside. Set your target number about seven. They find nobody. They don't see anybody. If they approach, they find out that the gates are open. Both barns are empty, save a whole lot of straw that's been spread around the floor, presumably as bedding for the horses. The house itself is well decorated, but it's obvious that whoever lived here left in a hurry. Papers are scattered everywhere and it appears that some clothing was taken as well. The big giveaway on this is the fact that a large safe in what appears to be an office is standing open but short about a dollar in loose change, it is empty. As GM, you can decide how valuable anything left behind is, because after all, if your group is into looting, they're probably going to ask you about the items. For the record, figure that Francis Colson probably spent about $10,000 decorating the place and just go from there. If any of the 20 attackers on Triumph got away, the group will find evidence that they were treated here, bloody clothing and bandages, as well as pools of dried blood. However, that's it. They don't find Francis Coulson, or anybody else for that matter, which puts them back at square one. If the group is being honest, Coulson could have gone anywhere, but the reality is that the best move would be to head for Dodge City. Have your players make knowledge check with a target of five. That reminds them that two railroad companies run out of Dodge Union Blue and Black River. Union Blue runs west to Denver, where the Wasatch Line picks up and runs the rest of the way to Los Angeles. Heading east, it runs all the way into the Union, stopping in Chicago, before other local lines pick up and run basically all the way to Maine. Black River also runs west to Denver, but runs southeast from Dodge and hits Little Rock before bumping into Memphis and along the rest of the Confederacy. Have the group do a smarts check with a target number of 8. Anyone who makes it does the quick mental math and realizes that while it takes 12 hours to get from Triumph to this homestead, Colson probably waited at least 24 to 30 hours for his team to return before he took any sort of action. So at this point, if you figured out how long the group was down and if they had to rest and recuperate, they were down for a bit. Subtract 30 hours from that and you'll know how much of a head start Colson has on the group. Now, if you'll remember, we said it was six days from Triumph to Dodge City. Let's shave 12 hours off of that because of where you're at and that'll give you five and a half days. Work all your math up and you know exactly how far ahead of the group Colson is. If it's longer than about a day, the group realizes they probably won't catch Coulson before he boards a train. But if your group is anything like mine, they're not going to take something like what happened in town lightly and will probably decide to chase off anyway. Even if they can't catch him before he gets on a train, they can probably figure out which line he got on and which way it was going, and then they can head to that location. As they ride off north, they will occasionally come across a dead body figure five or six over the course of the ride. These men are dressed like the men who work for Coulson, and it's obvious they died of gunshot wounds. Again, how the group wants to handle this is entirely up to you. My group tends to burn bodies at this point because they don't want anything rising from the grave to chase after them. However, your group might be appalled at that type of behavior and might decide to give them a proper burial. Or they might just ride on. Whatever works for your group. Now, Before we get your group into Dodge City, I'd note that Dodge is laid out for you in your Marshall's Handbook. I'd give the actual page number, but I'm using my 20th anniversary book today, and it has both the Player's Guide and the Marshall's Handbook together in one book. Just note that it's towards the back, and it has a map of the town, plus some of the more famous inhabitants named and statted out. Coming in from the south, the group will almost immediately come across the train station, now in Dodge City, the tracks for Union Blue and Black River share a train station and run on either side of it. That leads to its own set of interesting problems, but in this case it's a benefit to the players because they'll only have to check one station. The roll to get information is going to be either bluff, over or persuasion. The target's at 10 regardless, but if the player making the roll wants to bribe the ticket agent or whomever they're asking... Bribe them about 50 bucks, you can drop that target number down to a six. They'll find out that a Francis Coulson bought four tickets to Denver. How long ago that was depends on how far ahead of the group. He was minus eight hours because he came to town, he rested, got a bath, a clean set of clothes and a meal and then got on a train. The way I'd describe it is that he, you know, as I said, he rode into town, bought his tickets, got himself all that stuff and then left as soon as that train would depart that he could get. It doesn't matter which line he took, since they both go to Denver. You decide based on your own feelings and the composition of your group. What I mean by that is that if you've got a bunch of Union sympathizers, have them on Black River. If they're Confederate sympathizers, Colson Road Union Blue. Even though Black River technically isn't Confederate-owned, the fact that it runs through the South should suffice in this case. It's really just one more little nugget to kind of trigger and eat at your group a little bit. A little bit of that psychological game. That same ticket agent will point out that Mr. Colson's group left their horses and saddlebags behind, and will note that Under Sheriff Bat Masterson and Deputy Town Marshal Wyatt Earp came to collect them shortly after. Since your group will probably want to check this nugget out, there won't be another train to Denver for at least three hours. They should probably go ahead and purchase tickets now, and they can take their horses if they want. Otherwise, Hambell's livery would be the place to try and sell them. Let them barter, but don't give more than about 50% of book value, unless the horse is a real glue factory candidate, then don't go higher than 25%. All right, you're gonna wanna keep an informal track of time here. They've got about three hours to get everything they wanna get done done before they need to be on the train for Denver. The group's going to want to go to the city jail at some point, so get yourself ready to role-play a couple of genuine Western heroes. For the record, I'd go with Tom Sizemore's Masterson from the movie Wyatt Earp and Kurt Russell's Wyatt Earp from the movie Tombstone. That's just my preference. You do what works for you. When the players first meet with Masterson and Erp, neither man really seems to want to come forth with the information. In fact, they're asking more questions than they're answering, and it should be painfully obvious they're trying to figure out who in the world these people are who are coming in and asking these sorts of questions. Now, if your players got deputized in Triumph and actually got badges, they can show those. If one of the players is actually the acting marshal of Triumph, that'll work too. Another thing that can help is if they mention the city of Triumph at all, because by this point, word of what's been going on there has gotten to Dodge, and both Masterson and Earp will be aware of the group's role in helping to save the town. Once that's all been laid out, these guys are going to open up and they'll tell the group the following things. 1. They did collect the horses and saddlebags from outside the depot. They took them to the livery and they sold them, then donated the proceeds to the school for supplies, and so that children from less than prosperous families could get the new clothes and decent food they need. Two, they pulled some papers from one of the bags and they'll lay them out on the desk for the group to look at. You can work these up however you want, especially if you're into props for your characters, but the basics are that Coulson intends to get to Denver so that he can get a meeting with someone he refers to as the banker. Three, neither man knows who the banker is, but the fact that the name's a code tells them it's got to be someone big and probably important in Denver since they wouldn't want their name printed anywhere. So that's what they've got for the group. If you've got a nugget you want to drop in here, especially if it fits into the background of one of your characters, feel free to do so. So, looking at your timing to this point, it shouldn't take longer than about 45 minutes at the livery because it'll be a take-it-or-leave-it kind of negotiation. The meeting with Masterson and Earp shouldn't take much longer than about 45 minutes either. So that's an hour and a half of the three hours the group has before their train rolls out. At this point, you can drop in a short encounter if you'd like, again, especially if it fits into the backgrounds of any of your players. After all, if they've got an enemy in Dodge City, this would be the most inopportune time for something to happen. I would note that they would need to deal with things without gunplay, since technically they're not supposed to be wearing guns inside the city limits. However, if nobody fires a shot, Masterson and Herp won't really get too angry about it. Or, if you just want to allow the group to take in the city for about an hour or so, go ahead and do that. This would be a good time for the group to re-equip themselves, and I'd note for the record that Wright, Beverly, and Company is a retailer for Smith and Robards, which is the company in this game that makes some very interesting contraptions. There are a few contraptions in the book in the Mad Scientist section, but if you're looking for a full line, this is where I would point out that Pinnacle Entertainment Group has the Smith and Robards book for Deadlands Classic available on their website at PEGINC.com. I got mine in PDF, and I think that's the only way you can get it at this point, unless you've got a used game shop that has a copy of it. Regardless of what you choose, the player should be able to get back to the depot with plenty of time to catch their train. For most of the train ride, things will go uneventfully. However, just before the train goes to climb the Rockies, it comes to a complete stop. Checking out the windows, the players will notice about a half a dozen men with bandanas pulled over their faces, which of course can only mean one thing. This is going to be a train robbery. Unbeknownst to your group, one of the cars on this train is a bank train carrying cash and gold to the Federal Reserve in Denver. And these guys intend to rob it. Use the gunslinger template on page 88 for these guys, and remember to take cover for your players into account since they'll probably be shooting from inside the train. Also try to note where passengers are in each of the four passenger cars. This will make a difference about how the player's actions will impact the overall situation. For the record, the cars can be as full or as empty as you'd like for them to be, but I'd recommend that each car be about half full, which will put you about 10 or 15 people per car, not counting your players. This is also a good time to take into account missed shots. For the players, so long as they're shooting out of the train, this isn't going to be a big deal. However, for the bandits, if they miss a player, chances are good they might hit a passenger. Here's the rule of thumb that I use when a shot misses. Roll a 1d6. One through three means they miss everything and just hit wood. Four or five means they hit an empty seat. Six means they hit a passenger. Roll the damage and a hit location just like you would for any other hit. Also. If the players start shooting at bandits inside the train, that same rule applies. Once the fight is over and the players stop the bandits, those who are injured can get some basic medical attention. And the train's about an hour outside of Denver, so they can get to a surgeon within the allotted time to be healed. Also, give each player a white chip. Alright, the train gets rolling and it makes it into the depot in Denver. The first issue the players are going to run into is that while Colorado just recently became a state, the city of Denver's been around for a while, and it's way bigger than pretty much any city most of them have ever been in. If you just happen to have some old maps of Denver, and by old, I mean anything before 1900, you can see the city's just huge. If you don't have maps, don't sweat it. Think of it this way. In 1880, the population of Denver was about 36,800. So, backing off four years, it would be reasonable to cut that population down to about 25,000. For comparison, the population of Dodge City in 1876 was 1,200. So, yeah, it's a big difference. So, we've got a lot of mapping and prepping to do before the group can get any deeper into this adventure. We'll do that for next week. Oh, and what do you do if the group doesn't follow Colson either to Dodge City or to Denver? Well, this is where we go from using the carrot to using the stick. When they return to Triumph, they will find it burned to the ground. Everybody's dead, and one person who the group is really friendly with is nailed up on the post at the eastern entrance to the town. How graphic you want to get with that is up to you. My group kind of likes a bit of gore, so I go a little deeper. If your group doesn't, or if you're running this for younger players, keep it to a minimum and you can go from them having nailed up to have them laid out somewhere easy for the group to find them. Stuffed in that person's mouth is a note. Sorry we missed you at the house. If you're looking to get even, I'd suggest you don't. But if you do, we can have a rematch in Denver. Signed, Francis Colson. Now, your parties gonna wonder how in the world that was possible. Here's a little inside baseball on this one. Colson sent the large group, which the players defeated. Thinking that that was a possible result, he sent in another group. Not quite as big, but equipped with much deadlier gear. Think a gatling gun or two plus dynamite, nitro, and a flamethrower. Now none of that stuff has been left behind, but that's the picture I want you to have when you're laying this out. A whole lot of heavy machinery intended to do a whole lot of damage. And if that doesn't get the group back on track, I don't know what will. At that point, you can either have them head for Dodge to catch a train or have them ride through the mountains to get to Denver. In truth, the train's gonna be a lot faster. Now, obviously, if they skip all of that extra material we created, to wrap here would make for a short night. So if they go through the mountains, have them jumped a few times by a group of three to four who just really wanna steal their stuff. You'll use the cowpoke template for those guys. But once they get to Denver, we're still wrapped for this show. You'll have enough to run the Denver part of the game next week. So with that in mind, I think we'll stop the build phase of the show at this point. So that means it's time to get into the campaign recap for my group. Now, as a reminder, again, my group is way off track from where we are in the build portion of the game. But these recaps also give you more stuff you can use in your game, especially when it comes to your group not doing what you'd plan for them to do. I do also need to note I've got a couple of character changes to mention. Jim got a promotion on his job, congratulations, which is good for him and his family, but it's bad for the game since that means he'll only be joining us from time to time. However, I played his character for the first portion of this game, and I'll let you know when I stopped playing him. However, we have a new character in the group, and he's played by a player who's been a part of our group in the past, but hasn't played with us in some time. Tyler's playing a character who is half Native American and served in the Union Army during the war. As of his introduction, he's looking for a Cowboy, that's capital C Cowboy, who murdered a member of his tribe. So as we ended the last recap, the group was on a train headed north to Tucson from Tombstone. In order to get Tyler integrated into the group as quickly as possible, I decided he was on the same train car as the rest of the group and that the car only had the six of them in it. They chatted a little bit, but it was more casual small talk than anything. When they got off the train, the group decided they were going to head to the southern city limits to keep an eye open for the widow and the cowboys that she was riding with. Again, capital C, cowboys. Tyler asked the group if they needed help, and everyone agreed that an extra hand is pretty much always a good thing. As the group made their way through the streets of Tucson, someone called out to Gabe's character using the character's real name. That stunned Gabe, as he tends to use an alias when he's gambling with strangers. He locked in on the source of the voice, and it was a lanky, ginger-haired fellow wearing a bowler hat. He stepped off the porch of one of the stores, and five men fell in line behind him. Gabe genuinely had no idea who this dude was, and he asked me a number of questions trying to figure out where his character would have met this guy. Needless to say, he doesn't know him at all. Anyway, this fellow points out that Gabe cheated him out of money and he's decided he wants his payback. In blood. Needless to say, Gabe and Scott both tried to use their abilities to keep the situation calm, but I spent fate chips to keep that from happening. I was successful and the shooting began. As it started, Tyler's character had one of his perks kicked in. He's got a spirit that once per game session can provide him with information that can help him with the session, or information that will help with something for the overall campaign. In this case, the spirit told him that the five individuals with the ginger dude were walking dead, and that the only way to kill them would be with headshots. Now, right off the bat, the ginger plugged Gabe with a shot, which was three wounds to the guts. This is where I have to admit I drew really well for the bad guys and they got a lot of shots off before the group really could respond. And yes, I had Jim's character involved in this, since it became quickly obvious they were going to need him. The group took a ton of damage, but eventually killed off everyone. The town marshal, Lucius Snyder, came in and got them moved to the common room of a boarding house where they all got medical attention. He told the group he'd heard about the widow heading their way, and he said he'd keep a lookout for them since they'd need to get a good night's rest before doing anything. However, before he rested, Scott decided to do his thing with the ginger, trying to figure out what had happened. He asked how the guy controlled the undead, and the guy said it was a little something he got from a woman he calls the Widow. The reasoning behind the rest is that even though the doctor was able to heal everyone, we know that you're not going to get a bullet removed from your body and immediately go out and do a gymnastics routine. So overnight rest. I also decided as GM I needed to go ahead and get Jim's character out of the way because trying to run his character, run my NPCs, and trying to manage combat was not easy to do in that first fight. So I decided that sometime overnight, Jim got a bounty that was tied into his background, and rather than tell the group, because some of them were going to want to go with him, I know, he split, asking the marshal to tell them. I'll get more into this when I'm done with the recap, but the point of mentioning it here is to let you know that the party's back down to five. By morning, it was apparent the widow wasn't in town, and the group and the marshal were discussing possibilities of where they went. One of the possibilities was that they'd skirted the city and were heading north. At that point, they began calculating distances and times and figured the Phoenix area was the likely target. As they discussed this, a horse came speeding through town from the north, dragging a dead body behind it. The body wore the badge of a deputy sheriff, and Scott used his powers again to note that the widow, now decked out in full gunslinger gear, shot the man in both eyes with 44 caliber pistols. She still had all of her cowboys with her as well, and they were obviously north of town. So the team mounted up, leaving their wagon in town so they could ride faster. They headed north and they made a decision to stop later and leave earlier so they could close the distance between themselves and the widow because they knew they were going to have to camp at some point. The next day they ran into a campsite, but not only was the fire dead, there were dead bodies around it, six of them as a matter of fact. For the record, all of them were cowboys and one of them is the one that Tyler happened to be looking for. Scott decided to do his thing, and he found out that the widow had cooked the previous evening for the group, which led him and the group to determine that the men were poisoned. He also found out that the widow was heading for Triumph to build an army and to get even with the players. The group decided that they could either ride hellbent for leather to the east and try to catch the widow, or, and they ran the quick math, they could get back to Tucson, catch a train to Tombstone, then catch a train to El Paso. From there, they could catch a train north to Albuquerque and then ride for a few days to get to Triumph. Their thoughts were that they could get to Triumph ahead of the widow. However, they hedged their bets by having a telegraph sent to Triumph warning of the impending issues. On the train to El Paso, they just happened to run into a salesman from Smith & Robards and they picked up a little bit of gear. Basically, it was an opportunity for me as the GM to drain them of some of their funds but they did get some cool stuff they can use moving forward. Once they got off in El Paso, it occurred to them to head to the fort just east of the city, which by the way is still burned to the ground and uninhabited, to see if the walking dead they'd seen the last time they were there were still there. So they rode hard and figured out that not only was the fort empty, but that the walking dead were headed north. Tyler pointed out that the walking dead would get pretty close to Roswell heading north. So there was always a chance that the Confederates would stop them. However, the group decided to continue with their plan and they caught the train to Albuquerque. From there, it was just a few days to triumph. However, they saw the smoke coming from the mines and the town well before they got there. When they arrived, the town had been blown up and burned to the ground. Nothing was standing and the smell of death hung in the air. To add insult to injury, the wooden gateway that was the entrance to the town to the east had someone nailed to it. When they approached, it was the madam from the entertainment house. She'd been gutted, and a note was in her hand with the nail through both. Getting her down, they checked the note, which read, I altered the deal, Francis Coulson. The group was exceptionally angry at this point, and was in the process of trying to decide what they were going to do next when they realized they weren't alone. 20 walking dead, who were obviously the former inhabitants of this town, came up on them. Scott and Aniston had the idea of chucking dynamite nitro into the horde, and they managed to take about a dozen or so out doing that. The group did succeed at putting them all down, but they got really hurt again, and Aniston and Tyler had injuries that would have cost them limbs. However, since I thought that was cruel, especially because I threw way more Walking Dead at them than I should, I added a piece to this part. They noticed a lone figure riding into town, As it got closer, it raised its hand in the universal greeting of peace. The group immediately noticed that the writer was a Native American, and he reported that he was investigating the reports of evil things going on in triumph at the behest of his chieftain. He noted that the group had taken care of it, and since he just happened to be a shaman, he healed Aniston and Tyler to the point that they didn't lose the use of their limbs. Also, they then used fate chips to finish healing up, as did the rest of the group. I've got a few comments about what I did here, but I'll get all of those out once I finish the recap. Gabe and Tyler watched the shaman as he rode off, and about 300 yards off, he disappeared as if he faded into a mist. The group decided they'd had just about enough of Francis Coulson and rode hard for his homestead. Their intentions clear, they were just going to flat out kill him when they got there. In fact, Scott was riding in the back of the wagon as they rode along, as he procured a box of dynamite from a portion of the mine that had not either exploded or been burned, along with a spool of fuse cord, and as they rode, he started prepping bundles of explosives. All he would tell me, or the rest of the group, is that he was planning something epic. However, when they got to the homestead, they noticed there was no light. I mean, it was dark. But of course, you'd figure there'd be some light, at least from the guards at the gate. As they got closer, they picked up that all-too-familiar smell of death. And when they got there, they realized the entire homestead had been blown to bits. No barns, no house, no fences, nothing. And as they all stood there in a rage they couldn't release, a figure approached them from about 20 yards out. It was cloaked and hooded and held a torch far enough away from its face that they couldn't tell who it was, and it'd be torch, not targe. You get it. Needless to say, everyone drew down on it, and the figure motioned for them to lower their weapons. When they didn't, the figure slowly produced an envelope from the folds of the cloak, bent down to place it on the ground, then stood, snapped its fingers, and disappeared. The letter read, See you soon, boys. Sorry you missed your chance. Signed, The Widow. And that's where we wrapped. Okay, so a couple of things I need to point out here. First is the situation with Jim and his character. Some folks might ask why I sent him off rather than just have him as a non-functioning NPC following the group around. My reasoning was this. If the character is still with the group, even if I'm not playing it, the temptation will be there on both sides to use him if things get tight, and I don't want to do that. By sending him away, he's out of the equation. Plus, since I sent him away, if Jim can play on a given night, bringing him back's really not gonna be that hard to do. So this would be a lesson for me to you in how to handle this if it comes up in your group. I'd also add, there's nothing wrong with leaving the character with the group, but just not play them. However, if you're going to do that, you have to resist the urge to use the character to pass information or thoughts along to the group. And the group has to remember that they can't rely on the character to help them. For the record, this should only be used for long-term solutions. If a player is gonna miss one session, either play it yourself, get another player to play it along with their own, or have the character be a non-functioning NPC following the group around. After all, that character's player should be back for the next game. Next up, I wanted to address the number of walking dead that I sent after the group in triumph. Look, I'm gonna just flat out admit that's, that's something I messed up. See, my point behind doing that was to get the group to run. However, I forgot something that a number of GMs who put their advice out there have said in the past, which is not to take away your player's agency. In other words, I wanted them to run away, but they were bound and determined to do what they wanted to do. Shouldn't have done that. Should not have done that. Thank you, Hagrid. I either should have just put enough out there for it to be a challenge, or I shouldn't have done it at all. Fortunately for my group, it worked out, but I needed to do a little buggery to make it solid. Lastly, I need to explain why I destroyed the city we spent so much time building. And I did that both in the alternate ending for the build and here. First off, I need to note that if you don't want to destroy it, don't. If you've got a way to basically push your group over that emotional edge that will keep them motivated to chase after your big bad evil guy, which in the creation part of this is the Coulson Corporation, but in my game at the moment anyway is the Widow, then do it. That's why I did it. The group had such an emotional tie to the city, I knew that the one way to ensure they'd keep going until they either got the widow or whoever might be pulling her strings, no spoilers here, I'm just noting it's always possible. After all, the build has the banker in it. (laughs) Anyway, burning triumph to the ground did exactly what I wanted it to do. Of course, there's going to be ramifications for doing that and I don't really know what it's gonna do to the characters emotionally moving forward, but we'll see. If nothing else, it's gonna be an opportunity for some really interesting gameplay. So with all of that, I think we're done with the campaign recap for today. Now, next week we're gonna have a build session, but no recap since my game does not play this week and we're finally caught up with all those sessions with the podcast. So that means next week we're gonna build, build, build. And maybe I might drop a little something else in there to talk about. Just kind of wait and see if I feel inspired. As always, I encourage you to check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we're looking at the various titles in the world of darkness. For the record, that's the line that includes Vampire and Werewolf, among others. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all of your license-free, royalty-free music needs. The books we reference on this show are the copyrighted and trademarked property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and we use them on this show for entertainment purposes only. Bad GM's campaign, Build Along, is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at Bad GM Productions, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and you can email us at Productions at gmail.com. So next week, we figure out what your band of intrepid adventurers will find in the city of Denver. I think I might be looking more forward to that than you are, or maybe not. So until next week, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis saying so long, but not farewell.